0: I'm feeling a bit ropey this morning, so please bear with me. you probably gathered from my croaky voice, I'm probably a bit of coughing and spluttering for the next half an hour. Uh, if, you, uh, if you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Um, we'll be reading verses 13 to 23. Matthew 2, 13 to 23. I'm um, just going to make this a little bit higher here. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries, we'll uh We'll be projecting it down, we'll be projecting it up on the screen Uh, later. Well, here we go. Here we go. Christmas is nearly upon us. Um, Are you excited? Clearly Paul Winston is now excited. One. Um, In case you haven't gathered, I am very excited. Um, Our Christmas tree is already up. Uh, The kids wanted to be involved, but I got there first. No, 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 no. Um, I hope you've appreciated the mince pies, the Christmas songs and carols, uh, uh, and even the Christmas tree in the corner. Um, Over December, as Simon said last week, we're taking a break uh, from the Gospel of Mark. As most of you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, coming to the end of it nearly. Um, And so... Uh, we asked Gavin to set out over, the, over December, uh, Gavin to set out for us a Christmas sermon series. Uh, and so over the next uh, four weeks, so if, so if you don't like it, it's his fault by the way. Um, so over the next four weeks we'll be looking at the Christmas story, but particularly how four different characters or groups of characters reacted to Jesus, how they were prepared for Jesus. Because you know what? Jesus changes everything he does. You cannot sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Uh, The late John Stott, a Bible teacher, uh, wrote this in his famous book, uh, Basic Christianity. He wrote, the only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely. No one ever met, no one who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. They either hated him or wanted to kill him. Or they were afraid of him and wanted to to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten, captivated, dazzled, mesmerized with him and tried to give their whole lives to him. But nobody ever had a moderate reaction to him. And so next week Gavin will be unpacking how Mary was prepared for Jesus. The week after, I'll unpack the shepherds' uh, response. And just after Christmas, Sarush will be addressing the story of the Magi, the three wise men from Persia. Very apt for Sarush. Um Somewhere here's my drink. But today... Um, I'm going to be looking at a passage which you tend not really, you tend not to find, uh, read at Christmas very often. It's not part of the traditional nine lessons uh, and Christmas carol service. I wonder why. Let's read it, shall we? Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping, And great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled uh, what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for the Christmas story. I thank you for the truth and reality of the Christmas story that you came down to earth as we've been, uh, as a few people have spoken about this morning, that you came to earth and changed everything. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who changes us. You are a God who rescues us. You are a God who saves us. You are a God who transforms us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as I bring this uh, short word this morning, I pray, Lord God, that your spirit is upon us as we hear it I pray, Lord God, that you, your spirit is upon me as I deliver it. I pray, Lord God, that we are open to your challenges this morning. I pray, Lord God, that um, in all that we speak about this morning, that you strengthen us, fortify us, uh, give us a real confidence and assurance uh, in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So, there you have it. <coughs> this morning, I'm going to be talking about Herod. Uh, we can sometimes sentimentalise Christmas, can't we? Uh, we can try and decorate it with beautiful words like peace and bright shining stars and gifts and a little kuchi wuchi little child in a manger and stuff like that. Um, Christmas is definitely about those things and, and more, yes, absolutely. But the backdrop of this story um, is far from pretty. It is one of fear, of brutality of slaughter and of persecution and of flight centered around one man's extreme response to Jesus Herod uh, and so hopefully this morning we'll get you into the mood for Christmas a little as we um, as we go through this next uh, sermon series over the next few weeks so very briefly three things about Christmas this morning firstly christmas brings strife secondly Christmas brings joy in strife. And thirdly, Christmas brings hope in strife. It's not all going to be bad. So first, Christmas brings strife. So who was this man called Herod? What was he like? Was he the kind of guy that you'd like to have afternoon tea with, maybe? Well, Herod, or Herod the Great, um, wherever possible, he tried not to blow his trumpet, not... Um, he was the king of Judea. He was appointed by the Roman Senate in around 40 BC to do their dirty work, to control and rule uh, the people and collect taxes for the Romans. At the time of Jesus' birth, this Herod was king. And you know what? He was a bit psychotic. He was a bit of a crazy guy. One historian describes him as the evil genius of the Judean nation, prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Nice. When Herod came into power, the first thing he did was to slaughter everybody in the former kingdom, the Hasmonean dynasty, the previous kings and rulers, just to make sure none of them would give him any trouble. At one point in his life, he executed half of the Sanhedrin, 70 priests and elders who were the religious Supreme Court of Israel because they were giving him trouble. One time, in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 court nobles to be killed. One time, because he didn't really trust her, he had his wife executed. Then he had her mother executed. Later, he had three of his sons executed because he didn't trust them. When he was dying, he assembled in a, in a central building in Jerusalem dozens and dozens of noblemen. Noblemen, he had them brought there, held under guard, and he, and he ordered, the, and he ordered the minute he died, his death should be mourned and celebrated by everybody in that building being uh, be slaughtered. Fortunately, they didn't do it. Are you getting a feel for this man called Herod? And so when Herod hears from the three wise men uh, from the east that Jesus, a new king, the Messiah, is going to be born, his reaction is extreme. Verse 16 says this, He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. That is the backdrop jubilee of the Christmas story. That's not what most people think about when you're having your turkey and cranberry sauce on Christmas Day, is it? And so Jesus and his family flee in terror. They become refugees on the run, uh, running for their very lives, running from this crazy madman called Herod the Great. Strife. And really what I want to propose to you uh, this morning is that what ha- is that's what happens to lesser and greater degrees when Jesus comes into your life. We didn't tell you that on Alpha, did we? That's what biblical Christianity, if you like, is through and through, isn't it? On the one hand, there is really, really great peace. There's great peace, isn't there? knowing that you don't have to prove yourself all the time, but rather that your confidence and assurance and value is in Christ, knowing that there's no condemnation anymore for those who are rooted in Jesus, whatever your past looked like, whatever you do in the future. Um, Knowing the unshakable trustworthiness of God in this up-and-down world we live in, there's real peace when you love Jesus, when Jesus comes into your life. But on the other hand, when you put your trust in Jesus, when you choose to faithfully uh, follow him, um, come what may as you lead a life of obedience, as Paul Woodward uh, spoke about the other week, when Jesus comes into your life, you know what? There's a new fight. There's a new strife also. So what kind of strifes do I mean? Well, briefly, three areas, I think. Firstly, there's a real vulnerability, isn't there? Following Jesus means giving yourself to people, doesn't it? And often that causes hurt and conflict and tension. When Jesus was asked by his disciples what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? He said, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love each other. Uh, Love your neighbor, love each other as yourself. A really tall order, if you think about it. Have you seen who's in your community group? As followers of Jesus, we go out of our way for people, don't we? We get truly vulnerable with others. We get stuck into relationships. Now, not for our sake, but for their sakes, we open ourselves up to them. We give, we share, we invest, we pour out into marriage, into our kids, into... the into our church family, into the lost, into black, white, old, young, from all walks of life, from all backgrounds. That's the church. That's what makes it so wonderful, so attractive, yet so hard. But let me tell you, when you do that, it will hurt. People will let you down. People will leave. People will disappoint you. You'll disappoint them. Yet despite all that strife, despite the tension, despite the conflict, we work it out. Jesus calls us to do that. By the same grace and forgiveness and love that Jesus showed you, you are called Jubilee to show that to others. Gordon Fee writes about about church community. He said, God is isn't simply saving diverse individuals and preparing them for heaven in some distant future. Rather, he is miraculously creating a people for his his name among whom God can dwell and who in her life together will produce God's life and character in all its unity and diversity and richness. Jubilee, are you giving yourself to the community life of the church, even if it hurts, even if it's difficult, even if it's causing tension, in your community group, in your prayer team, in, different, in the different areas you serve, opening up your home, being accountable to each other? Are you? Because if not, why not? This isn't a secondary issue. This is important. Secondly, strife number two, as I see it, Strife number two, persecution, insults, hardship, suffering. This is all over the Bible. The coming of Jesus, when you read the New Testament, brings strife. See what happens in this little story. There's a violent reaction to Jesus. We know that, we've heard that, we've read that. But then what? The members of Jesus' family become refugees, not just Jesus'. The citizens of Jesus' city are slaughtered. Not just Jesus. Tim Keller, a New York pastor, writes this: the hatred of the world structures for Jesus will engulf all those who associate with him. That's a reality. That's the deal as a believer. We will face trials and suffering and insults for Jesus if he's really transforming us to the degree he wants to. In persecuted nations, at work, our families, as we reach out, following Jesus can be really difficult. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in the Bible? He said this, a servant is not greater, he's talking about himself, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He said in Luke 10.3, go, go. We like that word. We've been talking about a lot about that in Jubilee. Go, being a going people. But he says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Jubilee, the Bible doesn't beat around the bush. The Bible promises us that we face a life of suffering and and trials. The more we move out in faith, following Him, obeying Him, don't be shocked by it, don't be startled by it, but instead expect it. Most importantly, be prepared to be prepared for it. Jesus fortifies us. Jesus strengthens us. He does. Thirdly, third inner, st- third strife, if you like. And I, I've put this down as there's an inner strife that comes when Jesus comes into your life. You see, when you put your trust in Jesus, whatever, what, what never bothered you before bothers you now. Jesus changes your conscience. On the one hand, you have a new nature that's now being renewed into submission, into submission of joy to him. But you have an old part of yourself that's still running away, rebelling. And as as a result, the fighting between the flesh and the spirit is a new problem created by the coming of Jesus into your life, by the gospel making a difference. You didn't have it before. In fact, before I became a Christian, I used to brag about how plastered I got on the weekend. I used to brag about how the different selfish relationships I got into. I used to brag about taking drugs. I used to brag about how I managed to dodge work, dodge responsibility, spend recklessly. But now I have God's spirit living in me, a new spirit living in me, drawing me away, telling me, fighting against my fleshly, worldly desires. There's a battle, there's a strife, there's war going on inside. Galatians 5.17 says this, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He gets even more real in Romans 5 when he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Do you relate to that? There's a battle going on all the time, Jubilee. And through repentance and faith, we are being shaped more and more to be like Him. That is God's plan for us. That is how God chisels away at us, making a, a sculpting a masterpiece in us. Repentance and faith, very important. Christmas, the coming of Jesus, brings strife. It does. But secondly, in the midst of all the strife that Christmas brings, it also brings a joy that is rooted in God. That's what Paul Winston was talking about this morning. James 1, two says this, Consider it, hear this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Pure joy. That's what James is saying. That's a phenomenal statement if you really think about it. What on earth is he saying? Is he saying, don't you just love strife and suffering? Boy, this feels good. Wait, give me more. I'm loving it. I don't think he is. Of course he isn't. Look more carefully what it says. He says, consider it pure joy. Um, when this stuff happens to you. He's asking us to, in the midst of our suffering, to deliberately stop for a moment and consider and think and reason out the strife and suffering that we are experiencing from a bigger viewpoint from God's viewpoint, knowing that whatever happens, there is a joy that cannot be taken away—an unshakable joy that, in fact, grows in the soil of suffering, not gets not not diminishes. As you have no other option, particularly in suffering, uh, in seeing it through with our trustworthy God. The carol that we were, that I was listening to in the car on the way here says this. I was going to sing it, but I don't think I can today. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That's the point here, isn't it? That's the point of Christmas, isn't it? When Jesus, the king of kings, comes into the world and the king of Judea, Herod, Herod, won't stand down, won't receive him, what happens? War. And do you know what? There's a little Herod in all of us, warring away, fighting away against all that Jesus wants from us, calls us to, assures us, promises us, calls us to believe. And Christian joy is all about getting off the throne. It's about receiving Jesus as your king and allowing him to be your rock, your sovereign Lord, the one who has all authority and rule and reign, allowing his joy to be your joy, because his joy is certain and everlasting. I don't know if you noticed when Paul Winston said, I'm starting to get joyful, he didn't go, well, hey, I've got loads of presents. He didn't talk about all the wonderful things that were going on. He talked about Jesus coming into the world, didn't he? That's where real joy comes from. Uh, The famous British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, they who dive into the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And the pearl of greatest price is the glory of Jesus. The Bible again and again exhorts us to pursue this biblical joy in suffering, very different to what, um, what the world calls happiness and joy do you have this perspective because without it you will not be able to brave the storm and the storm certainly will come it always does and if you're not a, and if you're not a christian here this morning how will you get through the storm do you really think sitting on the throne yourself will do it are you sure christmas brings strife christmas brings joy in the midst of strife that is rooted in a new king that is, that is born at Christmas as a, as a little baby, as a man. Jesus. So finally, Christmas brings hope. On the 12th of April, um, on the 12th of April uh, in 1961, oh, that's right, on the 12th of April 1961, Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, became the first man into space. Um, and allegedly, in all, in, in all their bragging, the Russians at the time, in all their bragging and celebrations, one of his famous quotes uh, was, when he went into space, God was not there. When, he went, when, he, when they fired that rocket into heaven, nobody was home. That's what um, actually the Russian premier said uh, at the time in 1961. And C.S. Lewis responded to this in an article uh, he wrote called The Seeing Eye. And in it he argued that going up to space is not the way to find your creator God. He said that would be like Hamlet or Lady Macbeth going into the attic of his or her castle to find the author to find their author and create a Shakespeare. That doesn't make sense. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. If there is a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that could be put in a lab and analyzed with empirical methods. He would relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We, the characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree The author chooses to put information about himself or herself in the play. And that, again, is the wonder of Christmas, isn't it? That is the miracle of Christmas. That's the answer to all your questions. Why won't God do this? Why won't God sort this out? Why won't he act? Why can't he just show himself? Why? Why? Because he already has. God the great author and perfecter of our faith in his abundant passion for us in his never-ending love for us wrote himself into our story. That's how we know him. That's how we find him. In the coming of Jesus the God the great playwright at Christmas wrote himself into the play. He lived the perfect life that we were meant to. He showed us all the humility and compassion of God. He showed us what his kingdom was going to increasingly look like. He saw us in all the desperation of our sin and self-centeredness and pride and independence and warring and strife and came to rescue us from our greatest problem, a heart saying no to him. Sin, leave me alone, God, a total disregard dishonouring of God in our lives. That's what Christmas is telling us. God broke into history and changed it forever. In Jesus, we have a suffering God, a persecuted God, a tortured God, not someone immune to what we go through, looking on at a distance, no way. As Spurgeon put it, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down at the people, forsaking him, denying him, betraying him, and in the greatest act of love in the universe, he stayed there for you. Sam Storms, a Bible teacher, I'll end with this, wrote this, Jesus didn't enjoy the cross, he endured it. He didn't delight in shame, he despised it. What Jesus did was indescribably painful and distressing, but what energised his soul not to give up was the prospect of of the joy that awaited him on the other side of Calvary. And that joy was the joy that he would experience in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, you and me. And that jubilee is the eternal hope we have in Jesus Christ. That is the amazing, wonderful, glorious story, the Christmas story that we're going to be celebrating over these coming weeks. Are you up for thanking and praising this Jesus? Are you up for, as Rob said, uh, telling people of the wonder and glory and the fantastic Joy News Gospel of Jesus to your friends, your family, the people you work with. Can I encourage you? Bring them to our services over the next few weeks. Bring them on the 21st. Invite them into your home and let the wonder of Jesus' coming on earth be crystal clear, be an amazing message, a gospel message, that joy has come Into the earth. Let earth receive this wonderful king. Let's pray. If the band can come up, that would be great. Yes, Lord, I thank you for the amazing Christmas story. I thank you, Lord, that you are a great God. I thank you, Jesus, that you came into this world, that you changed history as we know it. I thank you, Lord, that you were the great playwright that wrote yourself into your play so that we might know you, so that we might experience you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us right now as we sing this last song, as we worship you. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will remind us of the glory of Christmas, of the glory of a baby boy coming to this earth. As Simon said, fully man, yet fully God, rescuing the world thank you, Jesus. We love you. We honour you. We worship you. And we pledge our allegiance to you uh, in every way. We love you. We put our faith in you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship this King.